Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of programmes in which Jeremy Hardy explores what happens when BBC executives don't listen to the programmes they broadcast. This week, how to belong. Thank you, welcome, welcome, those of you who've listened before, those who've just discovered us, and those of you like me for whom radio is just a kind of voluntary tinnitus. <laughs> In tonight's programme, I shall be talking to two people who've made a choice, the difficult and painful decision to work with me. <laughs> Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy. Hello. Hello. Now, I believe we've already had a complaint. Debbie? Yes, we've had an email from Minister for Culture, Media and Fish, Kim Howells. Dear bullshitters, I speak my mind and it doesn't take me very long. I don't know anything much, but I am a trained performance artist skilled in radio, music and colouring in, all of which form part of the general studies module of my degree in ministerial studies at the University of England here. And in my days as a qualified radio humorist, we didn't need microphones. You had to project, and the listener could hear every word. It's people like you who cause hip-hop. Up yours, Kim Howes. Seven flowers to his wife. Why? Well, you've got to feel sorry for her, haven't you? <laughs> Cast, any more messages from the listeners? Yes, um, you've been offered exclusive membership of the Virgin Trains Platinum Card Holder Scheme, which entitles you to go right past all the other passengers and walk straight to your destination. <laughs> Last week we discussed how to be yourself, but tonight we are looking at how we relate as members of a group. We are all members of what today are called communities. We are ethnic, we are cultural, some of us are religious, some have disabilities, we are fans, devotees, subscribers. Men even talk about their members to suggest something joined but not always 100% committed. <laughs> When a person belongs to a group, we have certain expectations of them. Sometimes a person's behaviour seems particularly discordant given their own group history. For example, we had two Home Secretaries in a row, Michael Howard and Jack Straw, who are the descendants of refugees. So when David Blunkett took over, I was waiting for him to start jailing and deporting as many blind people as possible. <laughs> but he too... But he, too, focused his attacks on refugees. He's rounded up Romanies and televised their expulsion. He has Home Office officials at Prague Airport screening out dark skins because they might be Romanies. And I have to say, I find something especially disturbing about a person with a disability behaving in a way I believe to be racist. It's the fact of the oppressed oppressing each other that irks me most. And I think it's because I am a male, able-bodied, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. We decide who's to be oppressed. <laughs> Don't come to us with lists to show willing. But sometimes people ask the rather fatuous question, how does the oppressed become the oppressor, as though there are forms to be filled in accompanied by two proofs of address? The question is, how does the oppressed avoid becoming the oppressor? If anything can be said to be human nature, other than an innate taste for Worcester sauce, flavour wheat crunchies, it is the tendency to do unto others things we don't like having done to ourselves. And sometimes we suppress the empathy that our inside knowledge should give us in order to prove that our experience hasn't made us soft and that we belong to the mainstream. When Thatcher got in, some people thought it would be good for women and were cruelly disappointed. I'm sure if Ian Duncan Smith became Prime Minister, he would do nothing for people who, um... Well, pe people with their... Uh, well, you know. Anyhow... <laughs> 
Sometimes we have a hard time feeling we belong to a group, membership of which we are saddled with. For example, I have never thought I'm a proper bloke. I have no interest in cars, tools, sport or mountain bikes. The one thing that does activate my X chromosomes is a barbecue. <laughs> Men, it has been discovered, have a fire-starting gene. This kicks in not only during the balmy, smoke-filled days of summer, but also during the bonfire season of autumn and winter. The period around November the 5th is very important to us. It puts us in touch with our primordial selves to build a big pile of leaves, torch it and develop a slightly sicky feeling as it all gets horribly out of hand. <laughs> That's why the patio season is safer. We can give vent to our burning tendencies in a secure, controlled environment with the fire safely contained in metal. But we still get to hold the sharp things. Not the effete, short-handled, kitchen-sharp things Mother uses the rest of the year. Peelers and corers and zesters. Big, nasty, outside, garden, pointy things. <laughs> we stand firm with our barbecue tools like a warrior chieftain. We are Conan the Suburban. <laughs> but apart from fire, I've got no great interest in most of the things men are supposed to like. But sometimes I wonder whether lots of other men secretly feel the same way as me. To be a proper man, you have to like football, preferably to the point of hysteria. A man stands on a freezing football terrace, shouting the C word as though the ability to pronounce it were about to be taken from him, <laughs> affecting an acute insight into the game while unable to grasp the one key fact that foreigners are better at it, and commenting on the fitness of men who can run around for 45 minutes without stopping, when he himself can't raise a knee past waist height without breaking wind. <laughs> but is he truly passionate about football? Does he really love it? Or would it just destroy his sense of himself if he admitted he'd rather be watching West Side Story? <laughs> now, Gordon, I believe Scottish men take football very seriously. Yes, although most Rangers fans would rather be watching the hanging of Sir Roger Casement. <laughs> But isn't it a more, um, more macho society in any case? Oh, yes. I mean, we don't have your crises and issues and allergies. I mean, we've no time for wheat intolerance. We're too busy being intolerant of each other. Well, what, what team do you support? Party Thistle. And what religion are they? Uh, actually, Jeremy, they are the favoured team of non-sectarian Scots. Protestant non-sectarians or Catholic non-sectarians? Oh, Protestant. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Well, all this serves to demonstrate that a sense of cultural belonging can mean a number of things in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Great Britain comprises three countries and the United Kingdom incorporates part of another country. Now, I don't want to make light of the Irish situation because it's a tense and uncertain period in which only the presence of thousands of British soldiers prevents Ireland from sliding into unity. <laughs> The British have spent a lot of our history playing around with national boundaries. Historically, we always spoke of Irish and Jewish people either as a problem or a question. The Jewish question being, now I'm a question. <laughs> this, way, this way of viewing human beings can, of course, lead to problems, but in the last resort, partition is always a creative and lasting solution, as we've seen in Ireland, India, and, of course, Palestine, which we held briefly between the ten years of Turkey and America. Ultimately, most national boundaries are messy and arbitrary, and if people feel their identity to be something, it's quite hard to tell them they're wrong, since identity is in great part psychological. I think it's quite clear that Gibraltar adjoins Andalusia and not Suffolk. <laughs> 
and that it makes a lot more sense for them to be Spanish so they can nap in an organised way in the afternoon heat rather than dozing off in a chair and waking up scared and disoriented <laughs> with an erection and a long streak of saliva making its way down their chests. But 99% of them think a red pillar box makes them British, so it's quite difficult to persuade a man called Graham Luis Gonzalez Rodriguez Santiago Smythe that he's an embarrassing relic of empire. Of course, people who live in colonial outposts are often far more keen to fly the flag than people who live in the motherland. That's why World Cup time is a bit scary with the whole country decked out like a loyalist estate. <laughs> but it's very easy for me as a British citizen secure in my own state to cry a pox on all nationalism. A pox on all nationalism, see? <laughs> But then I would distinguish between people seeking self-determination from empire and people wanting to remain part of it. Empire used to be represented as a paternal burden, and perhaps being a colonial power is a bit like being a parent. At first you find the rebellious child who wants independence to be your biggest problem, but eventually it's the one who won't leave home and is going increasingly weird. <laughs> Then there are people trying to belong in this country who are told they don't belong here. Around Britain, the government is determined to dump asylum seekers in camps situated in the kind of rural communities where the post office is being closed just as it was finally beginning to be accepted. <laughs> in London, we're fairly used to seeing a variety of cultures represented, so it is the special mission of the evening standard to overcome our acceptance of difference. Women begging while holding babies are the people we are most exhorted to fear and loathe. Now, for those outside the metropolis, I should explain that The Standard is a bogus newspaper. Littering the underground, so-called vendors with dull eyes and grey skin, block station entrances begging in strangled cries for harried commuters to drop some small change into their inky palms in return for a hastily cobbled-together rag. And don't kid yourself, the money finds its way into the pocket of a wealthy press baron. This is an organised business. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move on to, the, uh, <clears throat> to one of the major things that people belong to. If you believe the tenets of a religion, I suppose you have to abstain from things you're not supposed to do in that religion. But you can't demand that people who don't believe in it obey the rules. If the creator in your credo says, thou shalt not run with scissors, or return not to the firework that is lit, he's been quite practical. If he tells you you're not allowed to sneeze or eat crisps, he's just being bloody-minded. <laughs> so you indulge him if you want to. I'm going my own way. I'll respect that you have your rules so long as you respect the fact that I come from a culture of pig-eating drunks. <laughs> On other matters, I probably have more in common with you than I have with my fellow drunken pig-eaters. This raises another issue about belonging. I am an atheist, but, although secular, am I culturally a Christian? Well, I like hymns and homemade chutney, but I don't like Raffles or Cliff Richard. <laughs> and I like the fact that Jesus turns the Bible from an 18 to a PG, but I don't like the way Christianity wallows in death. The idea of people in a synagogue drinking the blood of a messiah is unthinkable. Apart from anything else, if you used kosher wine for the communion, people would think the saviour died of diabetes. <laughs> But, of course, in the Jewish religion, the Messiah doesn't redeem humankind by dying. That wouldn't be thought of as a successful outcome. <laughs> I often think I should have been Jewish. I work in show business, I prefer cheesecake to Victoria Sponge, and I'm rubbish at DIY. <laughs> the idea that the Jews are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus is ridiculous. How many Jewish people could assemble something like that and have it stay up for a whole weekend? <laughs> 
On the other hand, I'd like to have been a Catholic so I could explain why I'm tormented by self-loathing and frightened of nuns. <laughs> and if I were a Buddhist, I could explain the fact that I keep saying the same things over and over again. <laughs> it is sometimes said that European culture is Judeo-Christian, but usually by right-wing politicians who've inserted the Judeo to sound less Nazi. <laughs> The Front National and even the British National Party have realised that acceptable hate figures change over time. In Holland, we even saw the rise of a far-right party led by an openly gay man. And people voted for him in large numbers, seemingly on the basis that he's dead. True, the only good fascist is a dead one, but it's hardly a manifesto. <laughs> I thought Ulster loyalists were the only bigots to rally around a dead gay Dutchman. <laughs> In this country, the Daily Mail, which supported Hitler before the Second World War, wrote in 1938, the way stateless Jews from Germany are pouring into every port of this country is becoming an outrage. Today it would express the same hatred, but the target would be gypsies. And the role of international religious bogeyman has been filled by Islam. Even the issue of Turkey's membership of the EU has become a debate about whether it's a good or bad thing for a lot of Muslims to become EU citizens, when it should have had more to do with the plight of the Kurds. There is also the matter of Turkey not really being in Europe. But then Israel's been in the Eurovision Song Contest for 30 years, <laughs> with no more than a yearly sense of... Oh, you're here. OK. <laughs> so what the hell? But people are seriously saying that the EU is Christian which explains why there are only two fishes left to feed all of us. <laughs> and you think, hang on a minute. The thing starts as a way of cheering Germany up because they were feeling left out of the celebrations about the fact that they lost the war. It becomes a trade association, meanders toward federal statedom, turns into a military alliance and then adopts an official religion. I think I preferred it when it was principally an experiment to find out what happens when you throw a lot of butter in the sea. <laughs> But of course, Turkey will join because of its strategic importance. And lots of Turkish people will be quite pleased because they see the EU as being a guardian of human rights. This is also the received wisdom of the British liberal middle class who think Europe is our only salvation because they have drinkable mid-priced table wine and proportional representation. <laughs> they think European legislation can force us to be free like a boy in a movie who throws stones at his pet to make it return to the wild. Or rather like an accurate simile. In fact, <laughs> in fact, membership of international clubs doesn't seem to have acted as much of a break on the behaviour of governments. Today, people are looking to the UN to stop the war on Iraq. But the last Gulf War happened under the auspices of the United Nations, and the use of depleted uranium then has left terrible birth defects. Huge numbers of people in Iraq have been born with no eyes. We asked for a statement from the Defence Secretary, and he said... Dear Jim, with regard to your claims about people born with no eyes, it is in fact the case that Saddam Hussein is withholding eyes from his own people. <laughs> Sources that we cannot identify because we've made them up have confirmed that he has warehouses stockpiled high with eyes and refuses to distribute them to his people or cooperate with the UN's Eyes for Oil programme. <laughs> Our information is that he intends to use these eyes for spying purposes, dropping them in London with tiny parachutes, or maybe filling them with anthrax and sneaking them into buffets in Kuwait. <laughs> Lots of love, Jeff. 
people like Claire Short and the Lib Dems say no war without a UN resolution. Ordinary member states don't have any clout. The UN's got 171 members, and the only thing most of them get out of it is the free headphones. <laughs> but one thing that is blunting the habitual militarism of the right in Britain at the moment is the fact that this country is now so clearly the political property of the United States. This has been the case since the Second World War. But what sickens the Tories is that Tony Blair is so blatant about it. Blair is certainly not Bush's poodle. Prison bitch would be more accurate. <laughs> At least Margaret Thatcher tried to convey the impression that she was the dominant partner in the special relationship. She approached Reagan publicly in a way that suggested she was determined to continue giving him long-term care, even though he no longer recognised her. <laughs> And John Major was able to travel the world without anyone recognising him. <laughs> now he's only able to keep travelling the world because no-one abroad knows what Edwina Curry looks like. <laughs> but in America, Blair is now as famous as Thatcher was because the American people see Britain as their only friend in the world. But Blair makes us into the worst kind of friend because America is saying... I just don't understand. Why does everyone hate me? At which point, a true friend would say... Well, maybe you need to stop annoying everyone. But Britain says... Forget everyone else, pal. It's just you and me now. <laughs> and Blairites... I love little... you! Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you, Gordon. And Blairites have an enormously inflated idea of his role on the world stage. They're always telling us how the Americans really want us on board. Well, rail passengers really want a toilet on board, but look how they treat it. <laughs> And no other country is so keen to assume this role. After September the 11th, most countries just sent a card reading, sorry for your sad loss. I think the French went so far as to bring over a casserole and say, You need something hot. It's all ready. Just pop it on the stove on a low heat. But don't let it boil because it will ruin the flavour. But Britain announced to the world, Anyone who wants to attack America had better come through us. <laughs> and we're all thinking, <laughs> I'm not making light of the atrocity of September the 11th, although it's worth mentioning that between two and 3,000 people died in the attacks and that between 11 and 12,000 Americans are shot dead every year by their fellow countrymen. It's gleefully pointed out by the National Rifle Association that a far greater number of Americans shoot themselves. But I'm bound to ask, in a country where there are people who find that consoling, why wouldn't you shoot yourself? <laughs> And, of course, America more than settled the World Trade Center score in terms of civilian Afghan lives without managing to destroy al-Qaeda. But we've already lost interest in Afghanistan anyway because the war against terrorism has become the war on terror, an even more nebulous concept. At least terrorism is an activity. Terror is merely an emotion. <laughs> it's like having a war on teen angst or midlife crisis. <laughs> Whether or not Saddam has weapons of mass destruction, we don't know. We do know that hidden underground in Iraq are large stocks of a toxic liquid that clings to the skin and suffocates victims by blocking their pores. It's called oil. Now, <laughs> some people tell me that oil isn't the reason for America's interest in Iraq and that Israel is calling the shots and wants America to attack Iraq. Well, whether or not Sharon would like America to attack Iraq why would he be able to make it happen? Well, from time to time when I'm talking to someone and I'm criticising Israel's treatment of the Palestinians, they'll say, well, yeah, and the problem is America is run by Jews. 
And I'll say, no, that's not the problem, and it's not really true. And they'll say, well, Hollywood is run by Jews. And I'll say, oh, what, so the occupation is Mel Brooks's fault? <laughs> I think they've got the relationship the wrong way round. Israel, like Britain, is a client state of America's. It's a strategic matter. Our special relationship with America isn't secured by a secret British Beverly Hills cabal made up of Michael Caine, Ozzy Osbourne, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. <laughs> But I've heard people say America is controlled by Jewish money. What's Jewish money? A dollar bill with the end snipped off? Money. <laughs> money does not have a culture. Corporations control America, and corporations are not moved by national sentiment except when it serves their interests. And one of the reasons I feel so strongly about this is that last year I spent time in the occupied territories with activists opposing the occupation, and among the most fervent and dedicated of them were Jews, from Britain, from America, and from Israel itself. Now, some of you might have heard me last year being interviewed on the Today programme or Broadcasting House about my experiences on the West Bank. Now that I am less of a gibbering wreck, I can explain to you more clearly what I was doing there. I was attempting to make a documentary about the international solidarity movement, which brings activists from around the world to take part in non-violent protests against the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. I arrived on Good Friday. On Easter Sunday, I was fairly shaken up to see the Holy Family Maternity Hospital, which had in March been sprayed with gunfire. The main focus of the shooting had been the statue of the Virgin Mary on the top of the church in the middle of the hospital grounds. But remarkably, the game old girl kept her foothold. I couldn't for the life of me see how the army could claim that she'd been a threat. I know her statues are reputed to move, but hardly ever in a sudden way. Not just to suggest she might be reaching for a concealed weapon. The next day I joined a march from Bethlehem to Bet Jalla, and some of you might recall we were shot at, which I can't recommend, but didn't half toughen you up. I now don't feel quite the level of intimidation from security personnel over here. Metropolitan Police, Royal Ulster Constabulary... I'm like, oh, bat and charge me, big boy. <laughs> I don't get out of bed for anything less than an armoured personnel carrier now. <laughs> As we approached this Israeli APC, we all went quiet in accordance with our non-violence training. This training was given to us by a pacifist Christian group, and some of it did feel a bit soppy. We had to do role-play and workshops called Tear Gas is Our Friend and <laughs> Learning to Embrace Your Bullet Hole. That is interesting <laughs> and useful. One important thing you learn is not to be provoked. Because if I'd kicked off, the army would have known about it. <laughs> I don't start trouble, but I know how to finish it. Now, another thing you do is to choose the people who, on a demonstration, will negotiate with the security forces. So us having stopped some way short of the APC, our two negotiators approached the armoured vehicle with arms outstretched in a non-threatening posture to ask that we be allowed to pass in peace. But immediately, the soldiers started shooting. But part of the training we had is you must try to avoid running because it creates panic. So the idea is you retreat slowly facing the army. So I thought, well, I'm here as a media tart, but I'm going to do my bit at this moment, because I didn't come here as part of this movement, but at this moment, with this movement, is where I belong. I am going to retreat as taught, walking slowly, in a non-violent posture, non-aggressively, but defiantly, standing firm in solidarity with these people, not panicking or running or showing fear, but making sure I'm stood behind a really big bugger. <laughs> Anyway, after a couple of days holed up in this hotel in Bethlehem, some of us were evacuated by the British consulate. It wasn't the first evacuation of the week for me, I can tell you. <laughs> Tank muzzle outside the hotel window will do that for you in the morning. 
But I'm happy to report that being evacuated by the British consulate is a marvellous experience, and although I am not patriotic, it did give me the rare opportunity to feel glad to be British, because there we were in Bethlehem and the army had invaded the whole town and all the various consulates sent vehicles to evacuate their nationals, the British, Italians, Japanese and Americans. And without wishing to disrespect my new American comrades, I felt very glad not to be going with them because they were collected in armoured limousines. Their drivers had helmets, body armour and guns. Our man had driving gloves. (laughs) And travel suites. (laughs) And as we sat in the Range Rover, the Italian vehicle had to back out to let a Red Crescent ambulance through, and he was having a hard time. And our driver said, "Ah, imagine that, an Italian having difficulty reversing. (laughs) And I thought, oh, fantastic. It's the 21st century and you're doing World War II material. (laughs) But he got us to the consulate in Jerusalem and out came the British consul and he was lovely. He said, oh, come in, come in, you've had quite an ordeal. And I thought, oh, marvellous. Wilfred Hyde-White lives. (laughs) He said, this is my charming wife, darling. Could you get a G&T for the young anarchists? They've had the most beastly time. Well, before we finish, we do have time for a couple of questions from the studio audience, and this is the part of the show I like to call Time for a Couple of Questions from the Studio Audience. <laughs> and the funny one has any interesting questions about anything at all. There's a man in a mauve shirt there. Is that mauve or is that more purple? I'd say mauve. It's a bit of a difference. Hideous. No, sorry. <laughs> do you think we'll go to war? Do you think we'll go to war? Yeah, of course we will. Of course we'll go to war because America is determined for us to go to war. And it's just reached this point where the government says, well, it's not inevitable, so that, so that when it does happen, they can say, well, it wasn't inevitable, so we must have had a good reason. <laughs> I, never use, I have these arguments with people, and they say, well, do you think we should have a war? And I say, no, frankly. They say, well, what's your alternative? And what? What? <laughs> That's not an argument. This is the end of logic. I mean, you could come down in the middle of your night and find your partner copulating with the video recorder. And you say, what the hell are you doing? They say, well, what's your alternative? <laughs> I don't know. A cushion, it's softer. I don't know. <laughs> man at the back there with a big no-smoking sign above his head. Did you bring that or did you just choose to speak to <laughs> Gentlemen there, talk to my pointing stick. If you stick. could steal someone's identity, whose would you steal? If I could steal someone's identity, who, what, and have the whole passport and everything... I don't know, I'd have um, Sarah Michelle Gellers. Because <laughs> then I could look at her naked all day long. I know, but <laughs> she'd look like me then, wouldn't she? If I stole her, well, it'd just be her inner identity, or do I get all the, all the lallies and everything? <laughs> this is a debased conversation. <laughs> if you'd ask that to Mark Lawson, who said, I'd have chosen Proust. But me? <laughs> me? Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Any other questions at all? Does this bit of the uh, show go straight to Radio 4 or perhaps does it go straight to BBC 7? This is, um, this is all going out live. <laughs> is, there, is there Radio 7? How many have they got now? Yes! Is that, is that a cable station? Yeah. We ain't got cable anymore. Got the old box, mind. <laughs> which is so good because... you've got Radio because, 7. What? You've got Radio 7. I could, 7. and then I could turn the telly on, listen to Radio 7 and stare at a blank screen. <laughs> be pointless, but better than watching Dead Ringers. <laughs> Hello, I'm Nigella Lawson, and I'm glad you told me, because I wouldn't have a bloody clue otherwise. <laughs> well, studio audience, many thanks. And if you'd like to join our studio audience, there's a lengthy and humiliating initiation ritual to be endured. 
Well, I'm off to my meeting of lapsed Anglicans against transubstantiation on balance. Until next week, goodbye. Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation star Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy, who are owned by and would be nothing without Jeremy Hardy. The producer was David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for the BBC, which belongs to us all.